Let's turn to the book of John, please. John chapter 3. Would you look with me? Take a copy of the Bible that you have. Look at John chapter 3. I'd like to begin reading, please, in verse number 14. The Bible says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. I'd like to talk about God's amazing love. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We pray that you would just meet with us in these few moments here that you would speak to our hearts, cause us to be still, to not dwell upon matters that are at hand that are pulling our heartstrings, but help us truly to be focused on the Word of God. And may you speak to hearts here today. May there be decisions made based upon what we hear. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It was back a number of years ago. In fact, it was the 2011-2012 NFL playoffs that Tim Tebow, the quarterback that had just come along with the Denver Broncos, took that team to an amazing victory over the Philadelphia Eagles, who actually were favored in that particular game. But it's interesting at the very end that the reporter that got with Tim Tebow after that victory noted some statistics that happened to all come together and to the reporter it seemed like coincidence. For instance, he had thrown, Tebow had, for 316 yards. His yards per rush were 3.16. The rating for the game on television was 31.6. The time of possession for their team was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. It's very interesting because as Tebow began to think about that and in succeeding weeks after that, he began to recall that back in 2009, and maybe you remember when he was playing for the University of Florida, the Gators, that he had under the, in the championship game under his eyes, John 316. It's very interesting that A couple of years later, the NCAA actually ruled out putting Bible verses or various things like that. But during that game with John 3.16 under Tebow's eyes, there were 90 million people that Googled in John 3.16. Many of them had never known that. It's hard for me to fathom that we live in a country that there's a lot of people today that do not know what John 3.16 is. I've grown up in Christian circles my whole life. I've gone to church since I was little, and I've always known about John 3.16. And as I think about preaching about this passage this morning, I think, first of all, that this is a very simple passage, and it's so simple that a child can even understand Why should I preach on John 3.16? But at the same time, this verse, as you read it, is so profound that even a well-educated person cannot fully comprehend its depth. Martin Luther, for many years ago, said this verse was the Bible in a nutshell. 
And within these 25 verses is, to me, the greatest story that's ever been told. And it's not just any story. It is a love story, an incredible love story. Describe love to me. Tell me what you think love is all about. It's possible you might think of some elderly couple walking down their driveway holding hands, and you say, boy, that's love. You may describe love of some other couple that you know that are just madly in love with each other. Or maybe you might think of a movie that you saw that had this beautiful romantic love story that had gone through the movie. And so that's to you is what you think of as love. But I want you to see that when we talk about love, we may think of a lot of different connotations today and describe love. You're in here today and you might say, I love God. But tonight for dinner, you might order pizza and sit down with that Pepsi in your hand and you go, man, I love this pizza. You know, we just use love in a lot of different ways. We love this outfit. You might bring somebody out and show them your new truck and say, look at this truck. I love this truck. Love is used in a lot of different ways here today. Kind of reminds me about the couple by the name of Jimmy and Marie. Marie sent Jimmy a letter and she said, Dear Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I felt after breaking our engagement. Please say that you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you forever. Marie, P.S., Congratulations on winning the lottery. (laughs) Everybody defines love differently. But I'm telling you something. When we come to John 3, 16, we find the greatest love story ever told. There's a story told about a man by the name of Gaylord Kamarami. He was the general secretary of the Bible Society in Zimbabwe. One day as he's passing out New Testaments, he went to give a New Testament to a man who was very belligerent. He tried to hand this New Testament. The man just kept pushing it away. And finally, the man said, uh, this belligerent man said, all right. He says, I'll take the Bible. But he says, I want you to know what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to take a page. Each time I smoke, I'm going to light up that page. and I'm going to smoke that Bible. And this general secretary looked at the man. He said, all right. He said, I'll give it to you under those circumstances, but I ask one thing. Before you smoke that page, would you read it? The man said, I'll do that. It was years later, he met this same man in a religious meeting, and he found this man had come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, and he was up giving a testimony, and here's what he said. He said, I had no problem smoking, Matthew, Mark, I came to the third gospel of Luke and smoked right through that. But when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke it anymore because my life was changed forever. Can I tell you something? If you follow what John 3.16 says, it'll change your life forever. Could I share with you briefly just a few things about this vast subject about love, God's love, and how it applies to us? Number one, I want you to notice the measure of God's love, the measure of God's love. If you're holding here today, 
the King James translation of the Bible, you'll notice here in verse 16, the first, the third word is a two-letter word. Would you say that word with me? It is the word so. You say, are you going to preach a little bit about the word so? Absolutely. Do you notice the Bible doesn't just say God loved the world? It actually says God so loved the world. You know, I could say to my wife, my beautiful wife who's sitting over here, honey, I love you. And she'd smile and her eyes would glisten and just she'd be excited over that. But now, oh, look at that look over there. That's better than the look last week when I said something a little negative and you ought to see that look once in a while. But imagine now if I said to her, Darla, I love you so much. I remember when my children were growing, we'd often say to them, I love you, and I'd, we'd hold our arms out so much, or we'd bring them in and give them a hug, and I, we'd say, I love you so much. Do you realize here today the measure of God's love is indicated by this simple word so, that God loves you so much. It's powerful. Can we just this morning grab a little measuring tool and, and find out the magnitude of God's love? I notice that the love of God surpasses any illustration that we find here on earth. Now, I don't understand it much. I'm not an animal lover, and I'm sorry about that to you church people that love animals, but I don't understand a lot of it. I watch when that dog gets in your lap and licks your face, and I shudder inside just thinking about it. I'm like, I don't get it. But to you, you love that animal. And that love is something special, but I want to tell you the love of God doesn't even compare to the love of an animal. The love of a mother is not even adequate. When my wife had our three children, I watched her take those little ones in, and I watched her nurse them and love them and feed them and care for them. And over time as a pastor and just as an individual, I've watched the mother's love, and I think to myself, now there's love, but nothing compares to the love that God has for you. But then I think it surpasses the illustration of the love of a mate in fact, the love of a mate is not even appropriate because many today who say they love that spouse are gone a few years later and that love is no more. But that love surpasses illustration, but that love surmounts our intelligence. Think with me about the love of God. Number, the, the, first of all, the love of God is unending. Define God for me. How, how would you describe God? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. Could I ask you a question? How long will God love you? Well, as long as God's living. How long does God live? God lives forever. God has no beginning. God has no end. Therefore, the love that God has for you is unending. The love of God is unequal. In other words, there's no comparison. When the Bible tells us about the love of God, it says that God so loved the world. 
Now, you ask me if I love people, and I will tell you, yes, there's people that I love, but there's people that I tolerate. There's people I put up with. There's people that if I was gathering in some for lunch, there'd probably be certain people I may not invite. But I want to tell you something. The love of God is something powerful, and that is it is unequal. He loves the world. The love of God is unconditional. When you think about the love of God, again, we place conditions on our love. We may love people because we get an investment on our love to them. We love those who will love us back. We love those who will reward us. We love those who are easy to love or who are worthy of our affection. But I'm here to remind you that God loves the world, the whole world, every person in it. God loves that sweet little grandma of yours who you think's never lied. But God also loves that person who you think is unlovely. You say, preacher, does God love the Ted Bundys of the world, the Hitlers of the world, the Saddam Husseins, the mass murderers of the world? Yes, God loves them. Let's get a little more personal to you. Does God love that spouse of mine who has been so cruel to me? Does that, God love that person that's been in my life who has betrayed me? Does God love that person who's abused me, molested me? Does God love that unkind employer? Yes, God loves the whole world. He loves you. But I think to me that the love of God is not only unending, unequal, unconditional, but it is unalterable. Can I say that sinners may go to that lake of fire and they may be unsaved, but they will never go to that place for all eternity unloved by God because God loves them. So first of all, the measure of God's love, but would you notice number two, the manifestation of God's love. I suppose that this word identifies for us the love that God has shown to us. I love the young lady who sent a note over to her sweetheart. She said, or God received a note from her sweetheart. He said in this note, I, I love you and I would climb the highest mountain for you. I would sweep, swim the deepest river for you. I would go through snow and hail for you. P.S., if it doesn't rain on Wednesday night, I'll be over to see you. <laughs> Can I say about love here that the manifestation of God's love is shown in this word. It is the word gave. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. We often say that talk is cheap. Don't tell me that you love me. Show me how much that you love me. Well, more often than not, people talk very big, but yet they fall short on action. But that's not God. Because God has told us that he loves us, but now God has shown us his love by giving of his dear son to die on the cross. The word gave 
is a word that means to offer, to bestow as a gift. Please notice with me, if you will, there was no ulterior motive with God when he gave his gift. There was no condition with God that, well, I'll show my love if you do this for me. Can I say that is a very simple and straightforward statement that God so loved the world that he gave. Notice these verses on the screen, Romans 5, 8. The Bible says, but God commendeth his love toward us. The word commendeth means to demonstrate or to show. He commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice this verse Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. You say today, can I really know that God loves me? Sure you can. I know today there are problems in this world. There are issues in your own world, your own heart. There's sickness and disease that we face. There's earthquakes and hurricanes and human trafficking and starvation and murder and rapes and injustice and on and on the world, the list could go. But I want to tell you, amidst all of that, we have a God that has shown us his love by giving his son. I remember when my dad showed me something about his love. Unlike some of you that I have met over the years, I knew that my parents loved me, but there was something very special one day when I got my license, and my dad bought me a used car. It was a 1976 Ford Granada. Now, that car was unique. You had to turn a steering wheel about two revolutions before you could really make a turn anywhere. It just, it was free, real free. There was a hole in the trunk, and my dad told me, he said, son, he said, whatever happens, leave the window open a little bit because that exhaust will be coming in the vehicle. He said, I don't want to be going to your funeral. (laughs) Now, that wasn't too bad, except for the fact there was no heat in the car. So in those window winter days as I'm driving that Ford Granada and I've got the window cracked open and no heat, I'm doing this, <gasps> freezing. But you know what? I love that car. And I had this sense from my own dad, though he told me he loved me, he sacrificed to buy a vehicle that I could use to go to work and to run errands and to do things that I needed to do. My dad showed me that he loved me. And I want to tell you something far greater than anything you've ever received. God showed us that he loved us by giving of his dear son. But thirdly, could I notice this, the mission of God's love. Please consider with me, if you will, the whole purpose of God loving us and demonstrating that love. All of God's love has a reason, and it involves you and me here today. And I think about this story of Nicodemus, and and here it is, a, a religious man comes to the Lord Jesus, and he asks about eternal life, and Jesus begins to explain to him And he shares with Nicodemus an illustration to help him understand two important factors. And these are important factors that you must grab hold of today. 
He shared with Nicodemus that you are a sinner who is dying and in need of help. And he shared with him that he, Jesus, is the answer. Now you look at verse number 14, and the Bible tells us here this illustration. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, why did that story get inserted? Because there was something important that Jesus was trying to get through to Nicodemus and is trying to get to you today. You look back in the book of Numbers, Numbers, I believe, chapter number 21, and you find here that the Israelites, as they're on their way from Egypt to the promised land, they had just left a particular city and they began to complain to Moses. Now, if you read through the story of the Israelites, you find the complaints and murmuring is a regular happening. But here it is, on this one occasion, they're complaining to Moses, we have no water, we have no food. Well, yes, the only thing we've got is this manna that's dropping down from heaven, but we don't have anything, and they complain to Moses. Moses begins to come before God, and God tells Moses here something because something unusual begins to happen that because of the complaining, there was these serpents that were coming and biting the people, and many were dying. And these complaints began to get so loud to Moses, and God tells Moses, I want you to make a brass serpent and I want you to put it on a pole, and I want you to raise that up. And whenever somebody gets bit, they are to look up at that snake, and God said they will live. Now, what was the problem with the Israelites? The complaining the murmuring, representative of their weakness and frailty. They needed something, and God provided a way, and all they had to do was look. And when they looked, they would live. Could I say that that Old Testament illustration Jesus brought in to help you and I understand two crucial things? Number one, all of us are dying. You may not be getting bit by serpents and dying, but I want to tell you something. There will come a day, if Jesus doesn't come beforehand, that you will slip off into eternity. And can I tell you that if you slip off into eternity without Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you will find that the eternal destiny is in a place called the lake of fire, but Jesus is the answer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you look at this verse, John 3, 16? It's on the screen for just a moment. I want you to notice this. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to ask you to read it with me, and I'm going to ask you to do something a little different here. Notice this. Let me read it. For John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I want you to notice as you look at the screen that in place of the world, I want you to substitute your name in there. 
And when the Bible says that he gave his only begotten son to whosoever, instead of whosoever, plug your name in here. Believeth in him, they'll not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you do me a favor? Now, give me your name for just a minute. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to give me your name. We're going to practice. Ready? One, two, three. That's a good name. I like it. All right? Now, in place of the world and in place of whoever, plug your name. We're going to read it out loud, and I'm going to share something with you. Ready? Here we go. For God so loved the world. Whoop, I'm sorry. I messed it up already. <laughs> Let's try this again. For God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son that if John believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, many times we read this verse and we pass it through and we say, oh yeah, God loved the world. But I want to tell you, God loves you. Point to yourself right now. Think through to yourself that this verse is not just meant for the person down the road. This this verse is not meant for the person sitting next to you. This verse is meant for you. God loved you. He loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son. I want to share in closing here today about a very familiar story that I read many years ago. The story was set back in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. The place was Oklahoma. A man by the name of John Griffith was in his early 20s, newly married, and had a brand new blue-eyed baby boy, and he loved that boy, and he had such optimism about life. He loved the idea of traveling and would hope that someday he'd be able to travel and so and visit these faraway places that he had researched. But in this time, 1929 came along and the stock market crashed. And with the shattering of the economy, the de- devastation of John's dreams came along. Oklahoma was being systematically ravaged by depression and despair. So John took his little family and packed up in the Model A Ford and drew, uh, drove off to Missouri to the Mississippi River, and he found a job there tending one of the great railroad bridges. Day after day, John was there at the controls and directed the enormous gears of that immense bridge over that mighty river. He would look out at the barges that would go by and the beautiful ships that would pass under the bridge. Each day he watched those ships carry those dreams that he had of hopefully getting to a faraway place. Well, 1937 came along and a new dream was birthed in John's heart. His son now became eight years old and was eligible to be able to go to work with John. And so that first day they were excited to go to work together. They got up early packed their lunch, hand in hand, walking over to that place where John worked. Boy, little Greg looked on in wide amazement as his dad pressed down that huge lever and lowered and raised that particular bridge. As he watched that, he thought, man, my dad is just awesome. Well, before they knew it, lunch was here. John had elevated the bridge and allowed the scheduled ships to pass through. And he took his son in hand and they inched their way down a narrow catwalk and onto an observation deck that projected 50 feet above the majestic Mississippi. And it was there they ate their lunch. 
Boy, John, as he's eating his lunch and talking with his son, he was telling him about all these faraway places, and he got so engrossed in the stories he was sharing that all of a sudden he heard the shrieking whistle of a distant train. He knew that that was uh, the, the Memphis Express at 107 they were going to be coming through, and they were only moments away. So without startling his son... He said in the very calmest tone possible, told his son to stay put right where he was. John quickly got to his feet, went up the steel stairway, climbed up into the control room, and once inside, he searched the river to make sure that there were no ships below. And as he had been instructed in his job, he looked straight down the bridge to make sure that there was there nothing around to intrude And as his eyes moved downward, he saw something so horrifying that his heart almost stopped in his chest. There below in that massive gearbox that housed those colossal gears that moved the gigantic bridge was John's beloved son. Apparently, Greg had gotten up and tried to follow his dad, but he fell off the catwalk and was wedged between the teeth of two main cogs in the gearbox. John knew that by lowering the bridge meant killing his pride and joy. He's panicked. His mind probed every direction. What can I do? Can I lower a rope? As he began to think through, he started to to think through about his son in agony, and he started thinking back through to his wife, who he already could see the tears coming down her eyes. His thoughts raced in so many directions. But with the sound of the train coming ever closer, he knew there was only one thing he could do. He buried his face under his left arm, and he plunged down that lever. The cries of his son were soon drowned out by the relentless sound of the bridge as it ground slowly into position. With only seconds to spare, the Memphis Express with 400 passengers roared out of the trees and across the bridge. After just a moment, John Griffith lifted his tear-stained face and looked into the windows of that passing train. He noted a businessman just reading his newspaper. The uniform conductor kind of took out his pocket watch and just nonchalantly looked at it. There were some ladies sipping tea after their meal. There was a boy that almost looked like Greg that was sticking his big spoon into a bowl of ice cream. And John noticed all the people were just in their idle conversation and careless laughter. But there was nobody that looked his way. No one gave him a glance. No one knew what was housed now in that gearbox, but his dear son, his hopes and his dreams. And in anguish, John pounded on the glass of that control room, and he cried out. He said, what's the matter with you people? Don't you care? Don't you know I've sacrificed my son for you? What's wrong with you? Nobody answered. Nobody heard him. Nobody looked. It seemed like nobody cared. And then as suddenly as it happened, it was all over. Train disappeared, moving rapidly across that bridge and over the horizon. Can I say to you today that this story 
is but a faint glimpse of the love that God has for you and for me. To me, the interesting fact is this story showed how John Griffith was caught by surprise in having to give his son. Can I remind you that God was not caught by surprise when he gave of his son? God from eternity past made a plan to give of his only begotten son for you, for you, that you might have eternal life. Could I ask you this question here today? Has there been a time when you, by faith, have received Jesus Christ, God's dear Son, as your Savior? It's the only way to heaven. It's not by what you do. It's not by how good you live. It's not by how many times you go to church. It's not by how much money you give to good organizations. Going to heaven is all through Jesus Christ. Could we bow our heads, please, and close our eyes? Just as we close this service out, I'd like to ask you again, do you know Jesus as your Savior? It's possible you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. You say, preacher, I, I, I don't know what this born-again business is all about. I don't know what it means to be saved. I've never been saved. I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Can I say to you today that this very moment you can ask Jesus to be your Savior? You say, how do I do that? Well, number one, you just acknowledge who you are before God. You're a sinner. You acknowledge that your sin will not allow you to go to heaven, but that God loved you so much to give of His dear Son. And if you by faith would receive Jesus Christ... The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'd like to invite you here today to pray to receive Christ. You can do it right in your seat. And what I'd like to do is just lead you in a simple prayer. Please understand that as I share these words with you, there's no magic in the words. This has to be something that is spoken from your lips, but you mean it with all your heart. If you'd like to pray and ask the Lord to be your Savior today, to know that you're on your way to heaven when this life is over, then I invite you quietly to yourself to say this prayer to yourself as I pray it out loud. Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I cannot save myself. But I believe... Jesus Christ, God's holy son, died on the cross and shed his blood to wash my sins away. And right now, I'm asking Jesus Christ to forgive me of all my sin and become my personal Savior. In Jesus' name, I ask this. While heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I will not embarrass you, but I sure would love to rejoice with you. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I just prayed that prayer. I meant it with my heart, and I asked the Lord to save me. Would you just lift your hand up for just a moment? Hold it up for just a moment, please. Anyone here today? God bless you.
Anyone else? God bless you. Anyone else? Good. God bless you. Anyone else here today? Preacher, I just raised my hand. Would you do me a favor? Just look right up here. If you raised your hand, all you need to do is just look at me and I'll acknowledge you. You can put your hand down. If you pray that prayer here today, could I say to you that the greatest decision that you've ever made is to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? The best decision I made, I know, was when I was close to 18 years old and I asked him to come into my heart. And I rejoice with you today because it's a great decision and it brings us together now in knowing that our eternal destiny is secure because of what we've done. And in just a moment, we're going to have here today what we call an invitation. And I'm going to come down front when the piano begins to play. I'm going to come right to the front. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite you, if you prayed that prayer, to come right up to me and let me know, preacher, I prayed that prayer and I meant it with all my heart.